Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello. The International Frontotemporal Dementia Genomics Consortium generates genomics data to further extend the understanding of frontotemporal dementia. Frontotemporal dementia, whilst uncommon, is the second most frequent primary neurodegenerative brain disease after Alzheimer's in people over the age of 65. Neurodegeneration occurs in the frontal or temporal lobes, or sometimes both. This leads to patients exhibiting progressive impairment of behaviour, cognition and executive function and language. The characteristic impairments can make it difficult to clinically distinguish between FTD and Alzheimer's disease at onset and during disease progression. This might be due to similar brain circuits being affected, but recent converging evidence has suggested a potential genetic overlap between FTD and other neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. This is where the wonderful work of the International Frontotemporal Dementia Genomics Consortium comes in, and I'm very pleased to welcome two of the core team members here today to talk more about the research they are doing. Raphael Ferrari, a junior research fellow at UCL in the Department of Neurodegenerative Disease, and Claudia Manzoni, an associate research fellow at the University of Reading in the School of Pharmacy. Welcome to you both. Benvenuto. Hi, Let's start with you. how you're both involved with the IFGC. Uh, Claudia? Uh, yeah, um, I am involved in the bioinformatic team of the IFGC um, and I help in taking care and processing the data sets. Uh, additionally, I am in the admin team and I help with the IFGC communications. So I curate the website, help with organizing conferences and public events. Um, who funds your work? So um, I am employed uh, on, a, on, on an MRC um, project grant that has been awarded to John Ardy, which is a professor at UCL, and my direct supervisor, which is um, Patrick Lewis at the University of Reading. Okay, great. And Raf, could you tell us how you're involved with the IFGC? Yes, well, so... Um, at the moment, I'm involved in multiple ways. Um, I would say uh, one word uh, fits all in the sense of I'm kind of coordinating this international network. Uh, it's, a, it's a network made of 45 research groups all over the world. It includes North America, both US and Canada. It includes basically the UK and entire continental Europe, and it also extends to Australia. And the major focus at the moment has been collecting and generating genetic data for a vast amount of samples that we've collected thanks to this network. So we basically now have up to 6,000 independent samples for which we have generated data. So it's, it's, it's probably the largest uh, to date data set on sporadic frontotemporal dementia. Wow, so it's a large international effort. Could That's you correct. maybe talk about some of the challenges that you found along the way of trying to coordinate everyone in the world? Lots of emails, lots of phone <laughs> calls. Yeah. Uh, we also get to meet uh, once a year, which is great. Um, did you did you want to say something? Yes, um, <laughs> it's just a very easy comparison. It's like a when you try to organize your, your Christmas dinner with your family, you have, I don't know, maybe 10 people that you want to coordinate and that 
partisan effort. Imagine the coordination of 45 groups distributed all over the world, with different languages, different, different time, time zones, time yeah. zones <laughs> and different legislation and bureaucratic procedures. So it's, it's really um, a major um, It could effort. be depicted as a job by itself, uh, whereas we do it in parallel with many other things we do in at the same time. But I must say, so it's challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. You get to, you know, you get to speak to many people. You get involved in in ac even different cultures to some extent, and um, so it makes it it makes it colorful. But the great thing is also about the the contribution of all of these people. So ideas, creativity, and also hard work, because everybody's then putting in a lot of a lot of effort. And coordinating that is really re rewarding. And, and looking back, at because this has really taken off over the past two years, so we've already used the data, we've generated multiple projects, we've published up to 16, I think, 16 manuscripts uh, to date. And so, and, and all different sorts of different sorts of projects, not purely genetics. So we've moving to we're moving towards bioinformatics and systems biology, which is an approach that allows us to go beyond genetics. So this far, genetics highlights genes, but that's kind of where it stops. It doesn't go the it doesn't make the the next step in trying to put them more into the context, especially into the functional context. That's what one of the things we're trying to do. And trying to make sense of the genetics from a functional point of view so that we understand what goes wrong in the neurons or what goes wrong in the system that then increases the risk of individuals to develop the disease. Yeah, so to um, sort of explore that a bit more, you said it's not just just genetics, as it were. You're also employing bioinformatic and multi-omic approaches. Right. Um, could you talk a bit more about actually what approaches you're using? Are you doing computational modelling, that sort of thing? To yes. Talk yeah. So I'll, I'll probably let Claudia speak more about this, but in a nutshell, what we're doing is we're using... So it, it makes... It makes um, it uses data which is already available, which other groups have generated in different compartments of 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 our research community, with the difference that everybody has generated those data, say transcriptomics or proteomics data, metabolomics, etc. Although we've not got to metabolomics yet, uh, but it's all kind of these different groups, different topics that have been done separately, and nobody ever talked to each other. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to talk to all of these people to find ways to integrate the data to make more sense because of, from the genetics to the functional translation you need to you need to walk through all of these all of these areas which are very informative but and then uh, more practically speaking, what we've been developing is f a number of pipelines which involve genic expression networks and protein-protein interaction networks. And this is what we've been particularly developing with Claudia. Yeah. <clears throat> Again, I will go uh, back to a simple example here. Um, actually, I... As a, as a training, um, I am a cell biologist and a biochemist. And so when I started working here in the UK in 2010, 
I was working in the wet lab investigating uh, autophagy and uh, the involvement of the waste disposal uh, in cellular models of Parkinson's disease. Um, however, I started to define two research questions. And the first one is that um, if we look at complex disorders, such as dementia, uh, we see that there are multiple genes that have been associated with the disorder. Um, and the fact is that when we go in the wet lab, we study one gene at a time, maybe two genes if we are lucky. So my question uh, is, can we find a way to have a look at all the genes that have been implicated in dementia all together at the same time. Because if all these genes are associated with dementia, there should be one pathway or maybe few pathways that are actually communal. Um, or convergent. Or convergent, yes, of course. And uh, this is something that we cannot really do in the wet lab because it will be uh, impossible from a technical point of view with the techniques that we have at the moment. But we can do this in silico because we can model it. And the second thing is that when we go to the wet lab and genetics is very, is very good at um, finding genes that are mutated, but genetics doesn't tell you which is the function of that gene. So uh, as a cell biologist, I was given names, gene names from geneticists. And then I was left in the lab to try and see what was the function of the gene. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of data and alleys. So the other question was like, um, can we find a way to kind of uh, give suggestions to the uh, cell, um, cell biologist so that they can go to to, to the wet lab and uh, organize an experiment with some ideas and not just uh, in a oh, fishing yeah. in a fishing expedition yeah. yes and so this is why uh, then in 2014 I little by little stepped into system biology and bioinformatics to try and see whether we can use genetics as a starting point to model in silico all these com all these pathway that then can be tested in the wet lab to kind yeah. of rationalize a little bit more the wet lab work then I was coming from the other end and you see that then we met and we had a similar kind of we actually realized it was the same question from but from the two different perspectives and I think this is also in a way it it, it gives a better overview of the the consortium itself it involves people with different backgrounds with multiple types of or forms of expertise we're talking about clinicians we're talking about pathologists we're talking about ge well geneticists of course bioinformaticians cell biologists um, even more recently we've started talking to pharma companies because of course if you find something which could be a biomarker or a drug target then you want to go to the next step and validate what, what you find which is still a potential so it is it is really a sort of 360 degrees approach where where you take the input of everyone uh to to kind of make sense of the whole picture also because when you step in the world of 
computer modeling and uh, kind of making prediction or uh, simulations, you also need uh, some statisticians and some mathematicians on board. And this is, this is an expertise that is not my expertise, and I think is neither your expertise, but this is why we need a consortium, because we need multiple people with multiple uh, experiences and expertise we bring them together and together we will be able to um, produce and define pipelines. It's an integration of expertise. Yes, so exactly. Yeah. exactly. Because so, we've sort of talked with other research groups about how um, research is kind of evolving away from single author papers and that kind of one person working in a lab effort to, like you say, involving people with different skills, because why do the stats yourself, if you're not a statistician, you know, involve other people? So this is like a, a huge effort in that way. You have created a consortium of experts from around the world to answer important questions about FTD. So And it could work. It's a, it's a format that can work with, for any, any disease. And in fact, similar things are happening for Alzheimer's disease. And I'm sure at some point, all of these groups which now are looking in this sort of format at one disease will also merge at the, lo at the, at the, at the later stage. Well, and I did want to mention actually about comorbidities, because you talked about different genes being involved in one disease, but... Mm -hmm there are different diseases involved in one person so do you look at comorbidities is that not actually how far you go with your genetic research or yeah, the one research? example is definitely frontotemporal dementia amyotrophic lateral sclerosis there is a there's definitely more than more than a gene uh involved in a sense it's more than genetics there's pathology there is some clinical syndromes which are overlapping or seen in both types of patients so there's definitely there's definitely um, a number of things that go from the clinics down to the molecular biology which which are the same or very similar then of course there's other factors so-called modifiers that then determine whether a patient will develop more the ALS syndrome or the FTD, be it the behavioral or the language variant. So this is this is another this is another uh, strong point I think of consortia, uh, because some of these people who who have an interest in frontotemporal dementia at the same time have probably the possibility to see patients that that all uh, say other patients with one of these comorbidities. So we can transfer the knowledge that we're creating within the FTD. Uh, arena to um, further to this to these other diseases, and then we can get uh, feedback from them. What one one of the things that we we've also developing is uh, collaborations with actual groups who do similar type of job that we do with this consortium in uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, especially because of this link that there is between the two diseases. So definitely there is, there is communication and we see that there is a link. Uh, so we're trying to further, to increase the resolution at which we can, we can highlight this link and also the differences because then that is important too. When you get to the stage where you want to treat a patient, something that will work uh, for one group of patients might work but not as much in the other group so you will need to add something some adjuvants in one case and some others in the other case but then you still will have that common common bit that you know you will you will you'll be able to target and you will do 
you you know you will do, you will be it will be of benefit for both uh, to both of to both of the the patient groups basically. And I guess doing it that way, you're in a way cutting out the um, phase clinical trial that involves giving a drug to a set of patients where you realise afterwards, oh, that it was never going to work in them because they had this modifier yeah exactly makes this treatment ineffective yeah so by doing this work beforehand it's prep work for you know a future drug trial or something you're separating out patient groups who will benefit from certain things and actually you you're raising a point which is very important for two for two reasons i think um so one is and that's something that we've we've seen and we we are seen at the moment. I mean, we're currently working on a on a particular project that um, added a layer of of understanding. Uh, so there is a there is um, an element which is the immune system, which has been consistently um, indicated as a as a risk factor in neurodegenerative conditions. And it's the case of Alzheimer's disease, it's the case of Parkinson's disease, it's the case of frontotemporal dementia. Um, we've, thanks to the consortium, actually, this was a work uh, led by other people within the consortium. So you see ideas and, mm-hmm. so, and then you, get, had the, you have the freedom to use the data to pursue a particular question. So this particular project indicated there is, in fact... A pleiotropy, which means shared genetic areas that have a similar influence on two yet different phenotypes. And what I'm saying, so we saw a genetic overlap between frontotemporal dementia and autoimmune disease. The current work we we are doing allowed us to look into this further. So we now have at least a number of area of the genome which seem to be involved in both uh, comorbidities and also we try we're, we're starting seeing elements within the immune system that could be targeted uh, I wouldn't probably I would be probably too optimistic but I would start including the word therapy why because we know that these elements that are communal to autoimmune disease and frontotemporal dementia have already been evaluated in autoimmune disorders as potential drug targets. So if the effect, uh, which in this case is an an uncontrolled inflammatory response, so what happens in the body is that the body itself, the immune system itself, is not able to balance the immune response. And this could cause, uh, based on where it happens, uh, a detrimental effect and if it happens in the brain and it's not modulated properly it can cause damage to the brain itself now there are apparently some drugs which have been explored in autoimmune disorders that target a number of elements that we see altered also in frontotemporal dementia so if those drugs work in the context of autoimmune disease they become the probably the first uh, targets that we would want to explore also in front of temporal dementia. Of course, you might need to modulate that a little bit, but you already would have a target. You can transfer it uh, from on from another disorder. You can transfer now 
knowledge that you generate and you overlap uh, with or from other fields and you could apply it to to your own to your or to your own field or to your own disease that you're looking at you would never have thought of it before yeah that's the fascinating thing in a way all these ideas are already out there but you have to bring them together and in a way it feels like science at the moment is getting to that place where they're like actually maybe we should talk to each other and we've all got interesting ideas and maybe they do overlap and you know diseases aren't separate from each other you know they're all within our body so they're all affecting each other potentially and you know and you could find shortcuts that actually you would never have thought of or you Mm -hmm. it would have taken you 50 years to get there because you were actually going (laughs) the other way and if you if you if you if you went this way you would have met your answer already but you need to talk this is a very yeah. good point and this is another uh, challenge i think uh, that we face within the consortium and with these large projects is because you need mm, a lot of skills different skills um, coming together and people from different expertises they don't use the same language uh, so you really need to talk and to explain and to get used to the way the other people talk is is really um, um, a long process of understanding getting to know each other and start to work together because people in different fields they um, may not know which are the needs of people in other fields so you really need to work your way um, through the project together and this is something that we got to learn little by little with the consortium I think yeah, I actually wanted to go back to something that you've both touched on a little bit, is that you have your academic careers, but you're also helping to run the consortia, consortium. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it probably goes all together in a way. Yeah, yeah but do you think you've had to learn management skills along the way that, you know, from your academic background, you didn't necessarily come with into this? Oh, sure. <laughs> For example, <laughs> again, a very simple example, but just we have organised now... Um, well, two uh, meetings, uh, which are uh, both of them were one day long, and we had to invite speakers and organize the catering and like book in the room and do a lot of admin things that nobody really tell you. And even kind of uh, involving uh, pharma companies and sponsors and uh, booking the room and checking that all the uh, technical equipment was working. You think about all those small details mm. that you need to go through to make sure that the day, I wouldn't say it's going to turn out perfect, but it's going to turn out decent. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to work for a, a medical communications company and we specialised in running symposium and conferences because it's such a large undertaking and yeah, people then outsource it to you because it's just easier. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you don't understand uh, like the... Um, actual involvement like like, the effort in organizing an event if you don't try to organize the event yourself then when you start doing it you're okay (laughs) you you realize that yes you really need a lot of skills and time yeah time. but it's yeah it, it makes you grow in 360 degrees as well i mean it's professional it's it's personal growth as well. You get to learn. You get to speak with a lot of. You get. You find yourself in situations you probably would not have put yourself yeah. <laughs> if you didn't have to. But then you figure out solving problems is fun. Um, so I mean, it's 
again, it's I keep on saying it's 360 degrees. It's really 360 uh, degrees. You you come out. It's a training uh, at 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 multiple at multiple levels. But then of course you need to deliver. Uh, you need to come back and you you need to you need to focus again on what your first priority and i believe i still believe a first priority is that of understanding um the disease now it's generally speaking we're applying it i'm applying it to frontotemporal dementia but generally speaking what we're doing uh is is a service to the community is to try to understand to help making life easier or or you know cure curing is is a is a big word uh, especially in these sort of complex disorders, but if if we're not trying to understand what goes wrong, very simplistically put, we don't know where to put our hands on to try and fix it. Uh, first thing, and then if we if we understand what is going wrong, and then slowly we can fix it, and at the same time we can step back, take a step back, and see how it fits in the bigger picture, and then start thinking about how ways to intervene early so that you don't even get to the stage where you just need to fix something or you can prevent it. So these two things, prevention, uh, to understanding to prevent rather than, than cure. Of course, curing is the current situation. Many people are affected now, so they need an answer now. Um, and that is definitely one very important point. So that is what is the short term focus but what the long-term focus is and should be and and is in in fact is that of using all of the knowledge we're creating also to go back and try and see okay how can we apply this now to make sure that the, this problem doesn't happen at all in other words i think is um of course um the community what they want is a cure or a, a way to diagnose the disease uh, before we get to a stage of um, a large brain involvement. But to get to a cure and to get to a diagnostic measure, we need to fill a certain number of steps. We cannot jump from like genetics, pure genetics, directly to the cure or directly to the diagnostic the trial, or to the diagnostic uh, measurement measure. We have a, a certain number of steps. We, we need to compact a certain amount of knowledge. And we are trying to do that. We are trying to fill the gap between genetics and the, the bedside. But it's a lot of work because genetics is only able to name genes. Then we really need to find what's behind those genes they that are named. They point at things, but it's not really telling you how they fit in the bigger picture that's why all of these all of these other people need to be involved to get to the next stage and again if we are all in the same room and start speaking about the issue and everybody kicks in with their point of view with their expertise um, there is where you sh where you start making becoming time effective um, then, uh, speaking also of cost-effective, um, now technology is is really helpful, uh, not only in data generation but also in data management, data analysis, data sharing, and those sort of things. Um, it, it's a better era to be in science. To be well, the technology really helps you a lot in speeding up uh, processes. Uh, but then, of course, it needs the brains of people to 
not only speed the process up but also make it sensible and um, realistic and all those sort of ingredients that are needed to be successful in this in this path that we're pursuing so yeah i think i think this is uh, this is this is the major point and goal um in fact also if you think still 30 to 40 years ago not everyone could go almost everywhere in the world is jumping on a plane and 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 just going for a couple of weeks somewhere you which is on the other end of the globe uh now technology i mean planes are more affordable there are many more flights etc so you can actually do some of those things um more easily than than in the past and similarly now with the technology that is available to to scientists um and and the way to communicate that that is so fast today uh you can you can literally do many more many more things and 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 leave your comfort zone leave your your area and get to speak to to people and experts and yeah so the the consortium seems like a logical step in the process is that now we've got this technology and freedom to travel and all this sort of things that actually bringing people together to talk about all their ideas is now how we're going to talk about science and move science forward um i also want you talked about the cost benefit i guess also in a way you're stopping doubling up because that's not cost effective for anyone if you realize you know you've got three labs in the world doing exactly the same thing do you also sort of talk about that gaps and overlaps within the research yes um there is one thing that we need to keep in mind with the consortium um the reason why we we need a consortium for frontotemporal dementia but actually for all the um complex disorders is that if we want to do um genetics for the sporadic population uh, we really need to have large numbers so for example in frontotemporal dementia the most of the people that um are affected by frontotemporal dementia uh, um do not have a familiar history so they are sporadic cases and to study the genetic of sporadic cases we need um, some mathematical models and some statistical approaches that uh require large number of patients so large cohorts so Uh, the consortium is really cost effective because we can put together different groups so we can organize a very large cohort and do those analyses otherwise uh, single groups they can put together smaller cohorts and so the work will not be powerful enough to discover uh, a lot of uh, g- genetic uh, findings while if we put everything together we save a little bit of money and we have a much powerful uh, tool to then investigate the genetic of sporadic disorder so this is another way why consortia in complex disorders are actually a benefit and it's also not only a this a, um, the point is not only about also different expertise as you mentioned it's also about delegating uh, if somebody is very good at a particular technique or a particular approach and we have a question that needs that sort of answer or that methodology to get to the ans- to the get to the answer that is going to be that group or that person is the one going to take the lead on that particular project so you yourself coordinating or just indicating uh that 
person A or B or group A or B could do this, you are speeding up the process that otherwise you'd need to go back, study the methodology yourself, uh, go through all of the pitfalls until you get to a, a refined pipeline and then do it yourself. At the same time, somebody already in the consortium or somebody who wants to collaborate with the consortium and has specific um, techniques and capabilities, they're going to do it and they're going to come back with an answer. And, and then another way to save money and save time and to get to the end point quicker, which is actually our goal. And also in addition to that, so it, again, it's not only genetics. So for example, when we're talking about early diagnosis, you need biomarkers. So <clears throat> one point is that of, again, liaising with people who do blood biomarkers. Um, you can talk to them, you can design your experiment, you can split it. Some bits you do, some bits they do. Uh, the interpretation, if somebody is already expert in that area, you don't need, you know, you don't need to stay up <laughs> all night to try and make sense of your data. You can just talk to them because they have done it already so many times. And then when you have, when you, so again, you cut time. I mean, it's, it's, it's very time effective. And it's also, you want to talk to the experts. You want to be able to talk to the experts to get a, a reasonable and sensible feedback to take that information forward. And for example, if you're able to identify some promising, say, blood biomarkers or fluid biomarkers or other types of biomarkers, like imaging biomarkers, etc., so you liaise with these people, and already you you you've developed you use you. you, you you you're going forward at at such a speed that then allows you really to try and validate this so what that means is that you're not only finding something which theoretically could work but you already have the access to somebody who can validate that being the pharma or being other groups drug discovery uh, centers at universities as well as private so and, and these are all groups that now are involved in the consortium as well. So again, this is how uh, it, 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 it's very promising to have all of these sort of expertises uh, together. Mm. It's fascinating. It feels like it's more of a community effort than, you know, ego-driven science maybe was in the past where you wanted to get that single author paper and have the biomarker named after you and, you know, Set up yeah, your own lab by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this has been so lovely to talk to both of you. Do you have any wise words for early career researchers in front of temporal dementia or wishing to set up their own consortium? Well, probably. So from from every everybody's experience is different. So what you bring uh, to the table is. Is your personal experience where you elaborate on it? Um, so for sure, you really need to be passionate about. You really want to solve it, or you really want to have that drive that keep you know that brings you out of bed in the morning, because uh, otherwise it's really painful. Um, so you need to be probably you need to be a little bit ambitious in the good sense, uh, because. It, 
would never forget um, what you're doing is a service to the community. You you actually in a lucky position to have access to knowledge, to have access to technology, etc. To use this for the benefit of all. So, if this is your approach, um, the feeling that you can help somebody that at the end of the road your work your hours sometimes it's also over working overnight and, and which is which is fine if you get where you want to go you'll put everything um uh, in 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 place to be able to do so um so if you need to you need to you need to keep in mind it's it's going to be hard work there're going to be times that it's really hard work and you'll ask yourself why am i even doing this but at the same time you'll see the end uh, you see you see the goal at the end uh of the road and both the the step forward when you when you have when you un- when you understand something is very rewarding by itself you, it, just the feeling of understanding something all, all of a sudden something makes sense and if you can apply this to life to life science and it helps somebody or it helps a large number of people that people feel better people can cope with some symptoms they they're having in a in a in a better way then i think this is this is the the biggest reward you can have and so if you're passionate about something like that passionate about service service a service to the community and passionate about solving something just getting to understand something better and making a step forward then well yeah i mean academia is really a good place to be in and for me well when i was at uni one of my professor told me uh be flexible and uh, i think that is a very good advice be flexible because for example what i do now on a daily basis is something that i didn't study at uni because some of the techniques didn't exist back back then <laughs> um and i started as a cell biologist uh, as a biochemist and now um i'm moving to be a bioinformatician and um i am an expert in system biology now so i i really i um you need to find your question uh your research question and then you need to be flexible on yourself in order to find the best way to approach the question and to answer the question and so it, be prepared to change this is uh yeah this is my suggestion good for life as well i think so thank you both very much for coming in um it would actually be great to have more discussions on some of the rarer forms of dementia so if you would like to join us for a podcast please get in touch and please feel free to get in touch with us if you have any questions about what we've talked about today using the hashtag ecr dementia thank you a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.